What an ending. Were you disappointed by it? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay, published in 2020. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together, I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you enter Audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel, or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that I've missed, or there's something in the podcast you agree with or really disagree with. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of the animals in that country. And I've read from page 140 where it starts, I need a rinse under the tap and a lie down. So Jean is on this road trip with her dingo, Sue, following in the tracks of Kim and Lee. She passes a stationary greyhound bus and the driver says he saw, quote, a young guy sitting on the roof of a vintage car with a little kid and a guitar. Yeah, it sounds a lot like Lee. This could all be a red herring, though. Maybe Kim is somewhere else. Mm. Jean hits a kangaroo with a young joey and is forced to break the neck of the poor joey. She sees the car that belongs to Lee at a roadside bar and snatches out Kim's doll. And she speaks to the barman, who says that they did break down, so he swapped it with his wife's car. We find out that Lee has stolen Jean's car. Does this raise the stakes slightly, perhaps? Angela must be so worried. The bar owner says that he definitely saw a little girl, and the bear is proof. So the idea that Ange might have Kimberly is a wrong one. The narrator seems to be beginning to talk animal. She's missing pronouns, for example. And it makes comprehension a little bit difficult. I'm not a big fan of this style, I've got to say. Jean checks into a hospital and is seen by a not sympathetic nurse who diagnoses a positive case of zoo flu and gives her a wristband and tells her to move on. Sue leads them to Graham's farm which is Lee's dad. What a coincidence. Graham is shocked to see Jean. She tells him that she's looking for Kimberly and Lee. She says, quote, I've got to find Kimberly before her mum finds me. And I'm thinking, why? Jean explains why she left Graham, because of an affair, and they end up sharing a bed and making love. And it does feel very contrived at this moment, I think. They end up having a big row over the fact that Jean could only have one child, and she and Sue leave. What am I thinking was the whole point of that episode with Graham? I just can't understand it. Now, they rock up at the seaside, meet a guy, possibly religious, dishing out food, and Jean bumps into a cat and asks it whether she's seen her grandchild. And at this moment, I'm thinking, is it me or is there just no plot? One, zoo flu infects. Two, Kimberly is taken. Three, there's a road trip to find Kimberly. There are no twists at the moment, and that is the plot. They're doing trepanning of skulls near the beach to get rid of the sounds of the animals. That's horrible. And they finally stumble upon Lee in Kimberly's white micra. Dun, dun, dun. She sees Lee in the water and people are being lured into the sea by the voice of the whales. They're acting like sirens of the sea. And many people are drowning. 
Quote, that blubbery call, all those people grinning, nodding, dying, a whole family wades past. And Jean thinks, quote, the waves churn, salt water in my hand wound. Beneath the water there is a bed. I can have a sleep on it, and I would, but for the foxy yap of an alarm. So we have more of that bed imagery again. But Sue, her faithful dingo, is her alarm. And even though she hates the water, she makes a sacrifice for Jean and stops her from drowning herself. Good old Sue. Lee drowns, however, and Jean tries to rescue him, but to no avail. And then she hears the sound of Kimberly shouting from the safety of a grassy cliff. Quote, home is dead on the shore. Home is waving at me from up on the verge. She goes on, quote, Lee's hair is all over her face. Even though Lee is gone, he lives on in Kimberly, represented here by her hair, Lee's hair. Kimberly is now in a police car. They tell Jean that she and Lee are nothing to do with her and the mother wants her home. And she says, quote, well, I'm her grandma. And the policeman says, not anymore. Well, I'm her guardian. I'm feeling very sorry for poor Jean at this moment. The excuse that the police are dealing with a missing child rather than all the dead and dying around them and the mass suicide by whale song and the trepanning is, quote, the little one's mum knows people. So Ange knows people that have got the police involved. Oh, really, I'm thinking, now you choose to divulge that. You're not wallpapering over a plot hole, are you, Jean McKay? Anyway, Jean tries to call Ange with the police phone, but there's no answer. Then she dials Andy, and he tells her how bad the park has become. And I'm thinking, how does she know those phone numbers by heart? A bit peculiar. She says goodbye to Kimberly as the police drive all the way 2,000 kilometres back to Angela. That is so unrealistic. And Jean says that her daddy, who is clearly dead on the beach, is talking with the whales. She also says she'll be following right behind the police car. It's a very, very crazy, weird and strange chapter. The trepanning, the mass suicide and the police travelling 2,000 kilometres to deliver a child. Ange must be very important to the police, but why? And I hope we find out. Jean buries Lee and she enters a church, even though by the sounds of things she hates religion, and she watches as a dog is slaughtered to turn into stew. Jean contemplates suicide, she goes into a bar, has a drink and gets chatted up by a guy and they try to make love on the beach, but they are too drunk. And at this point I'm thinking, I know Andy said Ange didn't want Jean around, but what if Kimberly needs Jean? Maybe Ange has gone nuts. Kimberly is only six years old. Jean should have followed the police escort back to the park. I wouldn't have just abandoned a six-year-old who I've grandmothered since birth. What do you think? Or is the author setting me up for some kind of epiphany? This guy, Shay, ends up stealing all Jean's possessions, including her gas, or petrol, if you're in the UK. Sue makes a dash for it when she hears a pack of dingoes calling for her. And I'm thinking, well done, Sue. Finally, you're free of this awful person who leaves a loaded gun in a fridge where a six-year-old roams. But Jean hears all manner of animals at night, especially bats, communicating with their sonar. And she stumbles upon an old farmhouse. There are lots of these similar locations in the book. At this point in the book, I'm asking, what does Jean want? The answers are less than interesting. One, perhaps food. There's plenty of that. Or two, to find Sue. That's pretty boring. The book has ground to a halt. I'm annoyingly waiting for the incident that will propel the book to its final ending or conclusion. This book is insane. She finds a giant can of peaches and instead of eating it, she feeds it to some rats, she finds. I'm thinking, what? 
Mm, it's quite unbelievable. Remember, she is starving and she's just eaten a live larva of some description. Listen to this. Quote, it's a giant can of peaches that someone would have served with cream not so long ago. Cutlery still in the drawer. Can opener, wedge of a blade to puncture the lid. The peaches were picked and packed in the time before disease. When I still had a family, I pull out a piece from the jagged tin and place it in front of the rat. Here, he sniffs and eats it, squatting quite neatly using two small paws. And then the rat sings about, quote, my balls are big, I lick my friends. Why is the main protagonist not feeding herself? This author has surely lost the plot, rant over. Anyway, Sue actually saves Jean from these rats. But she ends up biting Jean again. And Jean goes to kill her with a rolling pin, but she is knocked over. Sue has gone proper native after her visit with the other dingoes. She eats loads of rats. And Sue and Jean visit a town, a, quote, people town, where all the animals have been destroyed. As they leave, Jean sees, quote, a dead Persian cat that hangs by its tail from a basketball hoop in the driveway, bell collar sparkling in the sun. She bumps into a soldier who offers her a cure called Nozo. She, the soldier, has the authority to use force. And I'm thinking, but if she takes it, she'll end her beautiful relationship with Sue, which will be very sad. Ultimately, she is forced to eat the pill, and it has its effect. Jean says, quote, Hey, Sue, Sue, we should find something to eat. Where should we sleep? What do you think, Sue? Her ear moves. She glances up, but doesn't say shut up or stop barking. I squint at her, body quiet, but not in her wolf way. I can see her tail move, her ears twitch, her eyes on me, but I can't quite make out the words. There or here. My guts churn. The quiet drills into my ear canals until quiet is all I can hear. Nothing from the birds. The bugs gone to ground. The rabbits stunned in their burrows. The sheep hushed in their field. Ruse struck mid-bounce. I move my face around trying to catch something. A whisper here. A squawk and a buzz. She goes on. A bug scoots past, buzzing, mysterious. I let go of Sue's face and jam my fingers down my throat. Wretch and wretch, but nothing comes out. Not even a rat. Sue watches, head cocked. When I was pregnant with Lee, I felt full, like the universe was coming together right in my belly. Then he was out and real, and I loved his separate little body like I'd go mad with it. But Graham had to tell me to stop clawing at the empty space he left. I rip now at my face. The universe gone. My empty ears, my empty nose and my eyes. Can't taste what Sue's talking about or feel it in my pores. Imagine her saying, where is it? Where? But I can't be sure. I'm here, I tell her, in case she did say it, in case she's listening. I'm right here. The dingo licks her lips, looks away. And then the book ends... So, initial impressions. It was interesting. A book about animals that slowly gain the ability to talk and then that ability is removed. The ending was quite sudden. A deus ex machina moment. You'd have thought something would have led up to the development of a cure. It's a shame that the author didn't give Jean any moral dilemma in taking the Nozo pill. That would have ramped up the tension a bit and the stakes. So who would I recommend this to? I would definitely recommend it to someone who has a love of animals and is interested in the idea of being able to communicate with animals. It's interesting how her alcoholism wasn't really addressed so much in that second half. It's almost as if the author has just tacked that on as an idea to make the character a bit more rounded. I feel like if you're going to create a character who has a, an alcohol problem, it shouldn't just be tacked on. It should be dealt with in a serious and meaningful way. What do you think? Am I being oversensitive? 
there's some interesting ideas obviously to come out of this second half as well the idea of a bed and comfort from another in a bed becomes important to Jean she uses the metaphor of quote the empty bed to describe loneliness and when she's in bed with Graham as they fight she says quote he pushes away from me the cold air in the space between us Talking of metaphors and analogies, there are some very strange ones. There was an interesting description of the policeman having a face like bark, implacable. Listen to this quote. This is the police officer speaking. Quote, we've been asked to take her home, his face like a piece of bark. The mum asked us. And I actually think that's a really interesting analogy or metaphor. But bark... I think it's very interesting, gives a feeling of character. What do you think she meant by that? I think that some of her descriptive use of language is a little bit unclear and open to interpretation. I don't know whether she's trying to say that he's got a very interesting face or it's a very implacable, unmoving, hard face. And we've also got some cliches. The use of the word stupid tears. We've had stupid tears, now we've got stupid heart. Quote... My stupid heart shifts in my chest. You'll be looking forward to seeing me then. That's when she's talking about Andy. And the idea of this dingo tracking 2,000 miles that they've travelled seems crazy. I assume the centre is the park, but we do have this quote, Baytown, about 2,000 kilometres south of the centre. That's how far they've been tracking Kimberley. We've got some interesting ideas about animal enslavement. When a pack of animals wants Sue to join them and be free, Jean ties Sue up. She says, quote, Sorry, Sue, but you see why I had to do it. I always thought that Jean was on the side of animals, but really, I don't know how much she is. We've got some funny sections. The mice talking was hilarious. Have a listen to this. Quote, Strange messages of something trying to parent too many kids. This is the mouse speaking. See it, little, where, there, where, she, bit, he, bit, I, bit, I'll bite all of you. But a lot of the time, the animal talking text was just confusing. I guess that's how the characters experienced it too. And we've got that gene eating a larvae. That was quite gross. She hears the larvae going down her throat, talking as it does. It says, quote, inside, inside, my stomach groans. What do witchy grubs even look like? Pick one of the grubs up. Acid, it screams. My flesh, my skin. I'm sorry, I crack it half with my teeth and it goes quite milky, crunchy. Eat another without killing it first. Its body shouting down my throat. Inside, we're inside. It is interesting how she starts to adopt the language used by the animals towards the end of the book, which does make it a little bit more difficult, I think, to understand exactly what she's trying to say and express. Did you find that? About eight-tenths in, after Sue's disappearance, there's a complete breakdown of character motivation at around page 256, when the book becomes a vehicle really for a creative writing exercise in quote imagine what it would be like to commune with animals what do you think it seems to lose its direction all in all it is an interesting book what would it be like if animals suddenly started talking i like the fact that it wasn't just communication through sound it was through movement of fur tapping of paw that was very interesting Anyway, further comments I would love to hear. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about next month's book, which is going to be Howard's End by E.M. Forster. It's published in 1910, quite an old book. It's 382 pages long. If you're reading alongside, I'm going to be reading up to chapter 21 on page 192. So I've read A Room with a View and A Passage to India and enjoyed both of those books a great deal. So I'm really looking forward to reading Howard's End. I also live quite near by a cottage where the film version was filmed. But I've never seen the film. So I'd like to read the book and then maybe watch the film. So chapter one, one may as well begin with Helen's letters to her sister. That's from Howard's End on Tuesday. Dearest Meg, it isn't going to be what we expected. It's old and little and altogether delightful. Red brick. We can scarcely pack in as it is. And the dear knows what will happen when Paul, younger son, arrives tomorrow. From hall, you go right or left into dining room or drawing room. Hall itself is practically a room. You open another door in it and there are the stairs going up in a sort of tunnel to the first floor. Three bedrooms in a row there and three attics in a row above. That isn't all the house, really, but it's all that one notices. Nine windows as you look up from the front garden. Then there's a very big witch elm to the left as you look up, leaning a little over the house and standing on the boundary between the garden and meadow. I quite love that tree already. Also ordinary elms, oaks, no nastier than ordinary oaks, pear trees, apple trees and a vine. No silver birches, though. However, I must get on to my host and hostess. I only wanted to show that it isn't the least what we expected. Why did we settle that their house would be all gables and wiggles and their garden all gamboge-coloured paths? I believe simply because we associate them with expensive hotels. Mrs Wilcox trailing in beautiful dresses down long corridors, Mr Wilcox bullying porters, etc. We females are that unjust. I shall be back Saturday. We'll let you know train later. They are as angry as I am that you did not come to. Really, Tibby is too tiresome. He starts a new mortal disease every month. How could he have got hay fever in London? And even if he could, it seems hard that you should give up a visit to hear a schoolboy sneeze. Tell him that Charles Wilcox, the son who is here, has hay fever too, but he's brave and gets quite cross when we inquire after it. Men like the Wilcoxes would do Tibby a power of good, but you won't agree and I'd better change the subject. So I guess that the house that I live nearby that was in the film is the house Howard's End with these lovely big witch elm and pear trees, apple trees and a vine. It sounds like a wonderful place to live. I'm very much looking forward to reading that book. I hope you can join me too. So I look forward to discussing the first part of Howard's End by E.M. Forster at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of June. That's the 10th of June. See you then. Mm-hmm.